Metabolism, definition very simple. It's all the set of chemical reactions that happen in our body following different pathways. And we saw a little bit of that. Anabolism and catabolism are the two components, meaning anabolism, the process by which molecules are built and made, and catabolism, molecules are broken down. And as a consequence, there is release of energy if we have a catabolic reaction. And if, uh, we, if we have an anabolic reaction, that requires the input of energy. Now, in terms of energy, we also talk about this, endergonic, exergonic reactions. Well, we translate that concept into anabolism and catabolism in the context of production of molecules or utilization of molecules uh, for energy. So this brings the concept of linked reactions. Catabolism and anabolism are linked in this way. Catabolic reactions, for instance, that break down glucose, they release energy and that energy is used to make ATPs, molecules of ATPs. And that is a catabolic reaction, releases energy, and that energy is used to make molecules of ATP. And the energy is not lost. The energy is stored in the chemical bonds of the ATP. That's why the ATP is known as uh, uh, energy molecules, like the cache of energy that the cells have. How that happens? Well, mainly, mainly by the process of cell respiration is called, or aerobic respiration of glucose. Now, we'll see that in the human cells, there is two types of respiration, cell respiration, anaerobic and aerobic. And they happen in different ways. So we're going to see how this happens in the human cells. If it's aerobic respiration, it will follow three steps. First step is called glycolysis. Second, the citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle. And the third step is electron transport. After this, these three steps, then we are going to produce, the cells are going to produce lots of ATPs that can be used for something or can be stored for later. In terms of places where it happens, the glycolysis happens in the cytoplasm of the cells. And it is considered anaerobic, meaning that no oxygen is required for these reactions to go on. Yeah, because I was saying that the human cells, we can say we mostly produce energy by aerobic respiration. But there is also a part that is anaerobic within that process. And that's the first step, glycolysis. The glycolysis anaerobic, meaning that no oxygen is required. Second step is the citric acid cycle which happens inside the mitochondria. 
This step is aerobic. Oxygen is required for this to happen. As well as this third step, which is electron transport. This also happens in the mitochondria and it also requires oxygen, so it's aerobic. To have an overview and a big idea, the big picture of how the nutrients uh, are related to this process of cell respiration, we have the diagram here. And it shows a very summarized way of how we use the nutrients and how the cells, uh, what the cells do with those nutrients. Here is the blood, capillary blood vessel or blood vessel, any blood inside the plasma. What we have in the plasma is glucose glucose circulating in the blood in the plasma. Now, where is that glucose coming from? It is coming from the digestive tract. That's the glucose that we eat with our meals and we consume. But after the digestive process, it is broken down, all the nutrients, glycogen, every meal, broken down molecules until glucose. And glucose is found in the blood. But that's not the only source. Glucose only comes from our liver. We have glycogen, which is the polysaccharide, the storage form that we have in the liver. And the liver sends some glucose to the blood. So this glucose is in balance all the time. There's, there has to be a determined amount of glucose in the blood so the cells can use it. Now when the cells get the glucose, now we enter into the cell, we see the glucose enter into the cell, now the glucose is in the cytoplasm, what's going to happen here? The glucose will suffer a lot of transformation, many chemical reactions, the first one is the steps that we were talking about, the first step is glycolysis, it's a group of chemical reactions that will lead to production of this molecule, pyruvic acid. Now this pyruvic acid, this step of glycolysis, happens in the cytoplasm is anaerobic, no oxygen required. We just said that in the previous slide. And as we see here, anaerobic metabolism. This step happens in many cells for a little while. Muscle cells, skeletal muscle, they use this step a lot. But it's just one step of the whole three steps. Second step is happening inside the mitochondria here at the lower part of the graph. Citric acid cycle, which is uh, another group of chemical reactions going in a circle that will lead to the third, electron transport. And this is called aerobic respiration because oxygen is required for the pyruvic acid to go on into the second and third step. And as a product of metabolism, we have carbon dioxide plus water. This is a very summarized picture of all the things that happen. But it's good to have an overview how these steps happen, glycolysis, citric acid cycle, and electron tra transport, and especially where in the cell they happen. This is a whole pathway of glycolysis. Do not worry, I'm not going to ask you to remember every single compound, every single step of this chain. Um, this is what 
biochemistry professors like to do and torture the students, make them remember in every single step. Uh, but well, here what is important is to remember what happens after the glucose enters into this protozoal glycolysis. So let's I'm gonna highlight some things here. Because we start with glucose. And to go through all these steps, ATP, you see here, ATP is converted into ADP. That means that one phosphate is released and energy is released from this reaction. That energy, so this is an exergonic reaction, that energy is going to be used by the glucose, so can, glucose can go and get transformed into all these compounds. Two ATPs have to be used here, two units of ATPs. So the glucose can go all through all these four steps. And then, since the glucose has six carbons, you say that, hexose, it's split in two compounds with three carbons each. And continues a chain of chemical reactions here until we end up with two molecules of pyruvate or pyruvic acid, which is the same. That will be the final product, two molecules of pyruvic acid. But then in relation to the ATPs, what we see now, we see that ADP turns into ATP, one here, another one here, another one here, and another one here. Meaning that when these reactions happen, they are going to release energy, and that energy is going to be taken by the ADP to make molecules of ATP. And if we see, there are one, two, three, four. Four ATPs are made from the second part. How many were used here? Two. So we have a balance of two ATPs made this is what we have here. Summary. This is what you should remember. Two ATPs are produced. The net amount of ATPs are made from glycolysis. And this is a summary of pyruvic acid, ATPs, and two NADH. The NAD. We study the NADs as the coenzymes that get hydrogens. They are going to get hydrogens from this chemical reaction. When the chemical reaction happens, hydrogens are released, but they are taken by this NAD. And that's what we say. At the end, we have NADH two units. Why is it important to consider that? Because those NADH are going to be used later to make more energy. Questions to this point? Yes. So initially you said that um, the, the ATPs in the middle, mm -hmm. ATP, ATP, are those release energy that are taken by ADP right. to make ATP. Correct. And then in the end, we end up with two pyruvic. Two molecules of pyruvic acid. Okay. Which in turn are two ATPs. And two net ATPs. 
This is something that sometimes leads to confusion, especially in the exams, because the questions are sometimes presented as, how many ATPs are produced from glycolysis? And uh, students answer four. Um, but it has to be well specified that it's net amount of ATPs. If it's net, we're talking about two ATPs. If it's just say, how many are produced? Well, I made four are made, but two are used. So the net amount is two ATPs. This is another way to represent. This is the same chemical reaction of glycolysis, but represented in like steps on the, on the ladder. So we can understand this in this way. The glucose, to go to number one, has to use energy from two ATPs. So it can go up to this point. A lot of energy here. Now this glucose is broken down into pyruvic acid and it's going to release energy. That energy will be captured by four ATPs here. Plus, hydrogens are taken by ATPs. So it's the same summary of react reactants and um, products, considering these steps like the gaining of energy and release of energy of this step of glycolysis. Now this step of glycolysis is common in many species. I mean, single cell organisms like bacteria, they just rely on energy from ATPs made by glycolysis only. They don't need oxygen, especially bacteria that are called anaerobic bacteria. They, they don't need energy, they just rely on the ATPs produced by glycolysis. And uh, depending on the type of uh, cell that we're talking about, we see here glycolysis and the hydrogens that are taken by NAD. And those hydrogens are transferred into molecule of acetaldehyde, turn it into ethanol, and that's what we call alcohol fermentation or ethanol fermentation or fermentation reaction. But it's as a result of glycolysis. That's how the cells uh, ATPs for in the human cell, this is the picture here. Those hydrogens may be, may be transferred into a molecule of aerobic acid and turned into lactic acid. In that case, it's called lactic acid fermentation. Does this happen in our cells? Yes, it happens. When that happens? That happens mostly when the reaction of glycolysis cannot go further into the mitochondria to follow with the other two steps, meaning there's not enough oxygen sometimes. So oxygen is a limiting step, a limiting factor there. If there's oxygen, everything goes back. To the mitochondria, we make a lot of ATP. But it's not, if there is not enough oxygen, then we may end up with lots of lactic acid fermentation because this NADH is not getting into, into the mitochondria and those hydrogens are released outside of the cytoplasm, making lactic acid. And this lactic acid is maybe dangerous for the cell. It produces problems. It changes the pH. And especially in muscle cells, that's what we call the 
lactic acidosis or when we have uh, uh, muscular fatigue is because excessive accumulation of lactic acid in the cells. Why? Because it's not enough oxygen. How come? Well, you start exercising, you're not in shape, your lungs are not providing enough oxygen, and your muscles start to, they need more ATPs, but they continue making it and making a lot of lactic acid in the cytoplasm and producing muscular fatigue. So again, this lactic acid pathway is anaerobic. It is anaerobic, correct. Glycolysis in general is anaerobic, anaerobic step. But remember, it's glycolysis and it still yields a net gain of two ATPs. Another cell to mention that relies only in glycolysis is the red blood cell, RBCs. Red blood cells are special cells because they mature red blood cells, they don't have nucleus. And they don't have, they don't even have mitochondria. So how do they survive? Just by glycolysis. The red blood cell is just transport hemoglobin, it transports oxygen. That's the only job. They don't divide, they don't go into mitosis. They don't make things, they don't produce proteins. They just transport hemoglobin. They need some energy, of course, to survive, a minimal amount. So these cells get what they need just from glycolysis and lactic acid fermentation. So an example of two cells in our body that uh, make a lot of uh, lactic acid fermentation and glycolysis. Aerobic. So we said oxygen is a limiting factor here. If there is plenty of oxygen, and that's usually what happens with cells, if there is oxygen, enough oxygen, now the pyruvic acid, which is, remember, it's a three carbon compound. The pyruvic acid will get into the mitochondria and continue with the next two steps. Here we see like all this in the cytoplasm, the other two steps in the mitochondria. What's going to happen here? Pyruvic acid will get transformed into acetyl-CoA, coenzyme A. And this acetyl-coenzyme A, which is a carbon compound, will get, two carbon compounds, will get into this cycle of chemical reactions called the citric acid cycle. And again, don't worry about remembering the names of the intermediate steps here. What is important is to see what comes out of these reactions. And this is what we have. One ATP made after the citric acid cycle. One FADH2, two hydrogens gained by this coenzyme. And three NADHs. So this is what coming out of that cycle of chemical reactions known as the citric acid cycle. The reason why it's called citric acid cycle is because the acetyl-CoA combines with oxaloacetic acid and makes citric acid. That's the reason why we call it uh, citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle, the name of the guy that 
study to describe this. And after the cycle, again, oxaloacetic is formed to combine with more CoA and continues, the cycle continues. Well, important thing that happens, important events from the citric acid cycle, here we have more uh, summarized, considering other molecules. There is one molecule of GTP that stands for guanosine triphosphate, which is going to work as ATP, very similar to ATP, so it stores energy. And it's going to donate a phosphate to ADP and then make ATP. Three molecules of NAD will be reduced to NADH. One molecule of FAD reduced to FADH2. But if we want to make a summary and balance, consider that the peruvic acid is turning into CoA, but there are two peruvic acids. So for each molecule of glucose, we have to double the amount. And that's why we have this balance here. For each glucose, this is what comes after the citric acid cycle. Six NADs, two FADs, reduced because we have hydrogen, two ATPs, and four molecules of carbon dioxide, which is just a waste product, is going to be excreted. But the NADH and FADH and ATPs are going to be important. Where we now we have two more ATPs being made here. So if the cell goes through glycolysis and then to citric acid cycle, now it's gaining more ATPs, just because there is oxygen in the, um, as a factor. And then the third step, it's a very complex set of chemical reactions happening in the mitochondria called the electron transport and oxidative phosphorylation reactions. And all these names come from the details of the chemical reactions that happen inside the inner matrix, the inner membrane of the mitochondria. And um, in summary, what happens is there are a series of molecules, proteins, that are electron transporters, meaning that hydrogens, electrons, are going to be passed from these molecules to other molecules, like passing things. You put people in one row and start passing objects, it's exactly the same thing that happens here. So it's what they call electron transporters. What are those? Molecules called FMN, coenzyme Q, cytochromes that contain iron in their composition. What they do is they accept electrons from NAD and FAD. In the citric acid cycle, we saw that six NADs and two FADs are made. So they are going to transport or transfer those electrons to these molecules inside the mitochondria. And so the FAD and NAD now are free and they can return to the cytoplasm or in the mitochondria to be reused. So all these transport molecules will pass the electrons down the chain and they're being reduced, oxidized, reduced, oxidized, meaning gaining electrons, 
giving away the electrons and pass it to the neighbor compound. And every time this happens, those are exergonic reactions. And as a result, all of that energy that is released is taken by ATP molecules. Molecules of ATPs, which are diphosphate, will gain one more phosphate, they turn into ATPs, and they're going to store that energy in the chemical bond. That's what we call oxidative phosphorylation. Now, this process is not 100% effective. Some energy is released as heat. And we mentioned a little bit this when we talk about energy and thermodynamics, that whenever chemical reactions happen, uh, energy is made and used, but a little bit is lost as heat. Now, the following diagrams are, going, are showing the theories of uh, oxidative phosphorylation, electron transport, and how they happen. Uh, this is just to show how we start with NADH, who donates that hydrogen and transfer it to FNN. Now we are entering into electron transport, all these are electron transporters. And now you see how these hydrogens that contain two electrons and two protons, two electrons are going into this chain of passing and passing on. And at the end, will be accepted by oxygen. And now these hydrogens, they will skip all this, and they will join the oxygens here, and we have water produced. Now when they described and studied this, and the question was, how come just passing electrons and hydrogens, how come the cell can make so much energy out of this mechanism? And they arrived to a theory called the chemiosmotic theory, which explains this process of oxidative phosphorylation. How it happens, well those hydrogens that we see that are being transported, they are, here we see the NADH, releases a hydrogen and enters into electron transport. Well, those hydrogens seem to be passed to the other side of the membrane, of the inner membrane of the mitochondria. So after this, all this represents the transporters of the electrons. So the hydrogens will be passed to this side. And there will be a lot of hydrogens here, but not many hydrogens in this other side of the membrane. And at that point, there is a protein also here, there is an enzyme at the same time, ATP synthase, which has a mechanism that makes these hydrogens go through, go back, because gradient, we saw last time in diffusion, the molecules move from a later higher concentration to lower concentration, that also happens here. You see a lot of hydrogens here being made, not many here. This protein opens the door and all these hydrogens go through, come to the side. And every time the hydrogen gets in, one ADP gains that energy and makes molecules of ATPs. Well, that protein seems to have a mechanism like those revolving doors 
that are in some places. Now, how many people can go through those doors at the same time? Like four or five or six, and only one movement. Just kind of like that. And uh, that's why this oxidative phosphorylation is able to make lots of ATPs. And that's what we need. I mean, we're complex organisms. We have skeletal muscle cells that need to move and require a lot of energy. We have to make complex molecules, hormones uh, that have many carbons. And uh, we, need, we need a lot of energy in terms of ATPs. Exactly. Yeah. And this is the description of what I just explained in the picture, the chemiosmotic theory, how the uh, electron transport fuels the proton pumps, may bring the hydrogen from one side to the other side of the membrane of the mitochondria. And that concentration gradient makes the hydrogens go through the ATP synthase. And this one is going to make the ADPs plus phosphate into ATPs taking all the energy and keeping it in the molecules of ATPs. So at the end, comparing how many ATPs or what amount of energy we produce from all these mechanisms, we make a balanced sheet. Um, oxidative phosphorylation and electron transport, this is what we get at the end. Theoretically, if we make the numbers and see how many uh, ATPs are made from uh, NAD, from FAD, we get from NADH, three ATPs. From FADH2, two ATPs. And we start making the numbers from the previous slide, like we have six um, NADs multiplied by three, and so we end up with this band. Theoretical ATP. 36 to 38 molecules of ATP per glucose. And you can see how effective, how efficient this mechanism is. Just like glycolysis, two ATPs. But if we have oxygen and we go all the three steps, 36 to 38 ATPs per molecule of glucose. Now, this is another way, um, and book, books sometimes they go with more or less detail in this process. In reality, what happens is we always use ranges here, 36 to 8, 38, or this one, 30 to 32. And see why? Because some ATPs are used in the process, in the process inside the mitochondria. That's why some books, they show the balance and say, the theoretical balance is 36 to 38, but the real is 30 to 32. Those are calculations. Those are just calculations and estimations. But for our purpose, we need to understand the comparison. Just like all this is two ATPs. After the whole process of uh, aerobic respiration, 36 to 38. So there's a big difference in that. I think some textbooks even go lower to like 24, 26 average. Yeah, it depends on what type of uh, chemical uh, uh, reaction you consider, and the balance can go not too low, I would say, from 30. From 30, that would be the lowest, because there's always consumption of ATPs. 
So we've seen that the glucose is a very important molecule. All this process starts with glucose, glycolysis and so on. The glucose, we have seen as a monosaccharide, uh, can bind to many other units and form glycogen. But the glucose, if it just stays after glycolysis, then will make lactic acid. So that's another molecule related to this. Let's start with the relationship between glucose and glycogen. How these chemical reactions end up with production of glycogen or breakdown of glycogen. Well, glycogen is a large molecule and is a storage form that we have in the liver, liver cells, skeletal muscle cells, cardiac muscle also. And when the glucose molecules add to each other and make a long chain, well, that chemical reaction is known as glycogenesis. And we see the process here in the diagram. The glucose that is in the plasma will have different destinations. It may go into the glycolysis or can turn into glucose 6-phosphate, which just means that one phosphate is added to the molecule, and then bind to other molecules of glucose by glycogenesis and be stored in the liver as glycogen. And this follows just simple rules of balance. We have a lot of glucose entering into the cells, and all the cells are making ATPs of that. But if there's an excess of glucose, the cells cannot take more than just some number. So there's an excess of glucose, and that excess will go this way. Glucose 6-phosphate, glycogen to be stored in the liver and the muscle cells. And that has a purpose, because as soon as we need glucose, we don't, we don't have to use the glucose from the blood plasma, only from the blood plasma. That would be, be terrible. It would be a disaster. It would just rely on the glucose that we have in our blood. Because that means that if, I, if I'm going to run like for one hour, I need a lot, a lot of glucose. So that means that I have to be eating all the time, getting more glucose. And we don't do that. We take glycogen from the liver, what has been stored from the skeletal muscle, from the liver cells. We break down that glycogen and use those glucose to make ATPs that we need. And that's why the other, the reverse reaction, is here called glycogenolysis. Glycogenolysis. When we need glucose, we take it from the liver and muscle that have glycogen. And we go on the reverse reaction, we get glucose phosphate, and now this can enter into glycolysis and continue the pathway to make more ATPs. This is what happens in the, in the liver, the glucose, 
which is in the liver, it has a, a, it has a phosphate in a position, in position one, glucose one phosphate, I mean the carbon label was one. So that glucose cannot leave the muscle heart cells easily. It's stored there. Otherwise, just by osmosis, if there's a lot of glycogen inside the cell and not, there's no glycogen outside the cell, the glycogen will leave the cell just by osmosis. Or I mean for a simple diffusion. But that doesn't happen because the glucose has been modified and it will stay inside the cells. Now this enzyme glucose 6-phosphatase will remove the phosphate and the glucose can come out of the cell. And now it can be utilized. So that's what we see here, glucose into glucose 6-phosphate and glucose 1-phosphate and it goes to glycogen. Or the reverse reaction has to go to these two steps. 1-phosphate, 6-phosphate, so it can be released now as glucose to the blood. So this is just to show that the glucose in the liver or muscle cells is not easily removed unless there's an enzyme. And we activate that when we need it. Now sometimes there's not enough oxygen to go into aerobic respiration and all these um, aerobic acids formed by glycolysis, they cannot go to citric acid cycles so much. And it will just stay in the cytoplasm, but those hydrogen has to be transferred to something, so some other, other molecule. And that molecule will be the lactic acid. And this is what we call the Cori cycle because that lactic acid that is produced in the cytoplasm in case we are making those lactic acids a lot, that can be reused. And that's what we see here. That happens in the skeletal muscle a lot. Because usually with the skeletal muscle we exercise like lifting weights. If you lift weights for 30 minutes, one minute, big efforts, it's just doing an aerobic metabolism. You're making a lot of lactic acid. That lactic acid can damage your cells. But that doesn't happen because of the lactic acid is being reused. We see here this lactic acid being made by just by glycolysis. And this goes to the blood and it's retaken, it's taken by the liver cell and turned back aerobic acid, glucose sulfate, glucose again, and then enters again into the cell. So this is a mechanism the skeletal muscle cells have to reuse the lactic acid that is being produced in some circumstances. That's called the core cycle. The liver cells are the ones have, that make this. Again, you notice that most of these things, they are just reused, recycled, reutilized. Questions to this point. Now let's see what happens with lipids and proteins, and at the end we'll see how everything is related to each other. First, we just said that the glucose that is in excess or is not used, it is stored as glycogen. 
But luckily, or unfortunately, sometimes there is too much of a glycogen. I mean, too much of glucose. The stores are, are filled with glycogen. No more place for storing glycogen. So what do we do now with the glucose? We cannot just eliminate it. It will be a waste. So the body, what it does is derive the chemical reactions into production of fats. And that's what we know, that when we eat too much of carbohydrates, you know, we end up producing more adipose tissue. And this is what happens. The glycogen is formed by glucose. As you see here in this dotted arrows that go up, or the glycogen can be broken down into glucose and enter into the curve cycle. But here in the intermediate step, if there is too much of this happening, and there's an excessive amount of 3-phosphoglyceraldehyde and acetyl-CoA, well, these compounds can turn into glycerol and fatty acids. When they combine, we have triglycerides, which is a fat that we have in the adipose tissue. As I said, luckily or unfortunately, because luckily because we're going to use that fat, we need energy, we take it from the triglycerides, from the adipose tissue. Unfortunately, because if we don't use that fat that will be accumulating in the adipose tissue, will give us problems. The acetyl-CoA, that compound that enters into the Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle, is the central molecule for production of lipids. As you see here, from acetyl-CoA, we make fatty acids that are the important components of the triglycerides, phospholipids for the membrane. The acetyl-CoA is the main molecule to make cholesterol and therefore to make steroids, bile acids, hormones, ketone bodies, which is a type of lipid also and enters the citric acid from production of energy. So acetyl-CoA is a very important molecule and is like the central, crucial point to derive to many other molecules. Adipose tissue, triglycerides, very good thing because it gives us a lot of energy, lots of energy from the triglycerides. And that's actually what the muscles use mostly. If you are walking or running for more than 30 minutes, after the minute 20, 25, what, you, what you're doing is your muscles are using triglycerides to make ATPs so they can move. So long-term triglycerides. And also the basal, basal stage, we are just moving the muscles. We are mostly using triglycerides. But it has to be in a constant and regular rhythm. When you start, like commonly say, burning fat. And it gives a lot of energy, and that's the reason why. Lipolysis is a process by which we break down the triglycerides, and they turn into fatty acids and glycerol, so we can... Uh, use that energy. So the fatty acids will get into CoA, acetyl-CoA, and the acetyl-CoA will enter into the citric acid cycle to make more energy. And the glycerol is uh, taken by the liver. There's no waste here. The glycerol, which is a three-carbon compound, 
will be taken by the liver and converted into glucose. And the glucose into glycogen, perhaps. And we have a new word here, gluconeogenesis. Gluconeogenesis is the process by which glucose is formed from other compounds like triglycerides. Triglycerides break down into fatty acids and glycerol. And the glycerol can be turned into glucose. So we're making glucose starting from fat. That's uh, gluconeogenesis. And even from amino acids, from proteins, the glucose can be made from proteins or amino acids. That's called gluconeogenesis. The process by which we utilize the energy from the fatty acids is by beta-oxidation. This is uh, the name of the reaction. It is the removal of molecules of acetic acid from the fatty acids. And at the end, we'll have acetyl-CoA. And that acetyl-CoA can enter into the citric acid cycle. Every two carbons on the fatty acid chain, one acetyl-CoA is formed. So if we have a fatty acid with 16 carbons, we will get eight acetyl-CoA's. And each of these acetyl-CoA's will enter into the Krebs cycle. That's why lots of energy can be made from these uh, fatty acids. Ketone bodies, what are ketone bodies? It's related with lipolysis. Lipolysis, we said, is the process by which we break down the triglycerides, the fats. We make uh, fatty acids and glycerol. But when we are breaking down too much, too many triglycerides, then ketone bodies may be formed. And liver cells will make, will convert the fatty acids into acetyl-CoA, but then the excess will derive into formation of ketone bodies. Why we talk about ketone bodies? Ketone bodies may be dangerous. They make the pH go down, meaning they, lead, they may lead into acidosis, pH goes lower than 7.35. And if that happens, we call that ketosis. An example, uh, we see this in people with diabetes. In people with diabetes, there's a problem called ketoacidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis. And it's excessive amount of ketone bodies. Why? Because diabetic people, they have a lot of glucose in the blood, excessive amount of glucose. They have a problem with managing the glucose. The cells cannot use that glucose. Glucose is high in the blood, but the cells cannot take that glucose. They don't have the insulin to make that glucose get into the cells. And so the cells are blind. They don't, they don't know. They just feel that there's no glucose. No glucose coming in. So what they do? They start using lipids. They start breaking down triglycerides. 
lipolysis, LOTS. And when that happens, there is formation of ketone bodies. And if that is excessive, then we have ketosis, the diabetic patient coming to the emergency in acidosis. Lipids, yeah. And that's when, and if it's an excessive use of lipids, that's when it calls. Uh, that's when the ketosis can happen. And it develops, it causes ketosis. Ketosis, yeah. Ketosis is also seen when we starve, we fast for prolonged periods of time. Why? The same reason. You're not eating, you're not getting carbohydrates, you're not getting enough glucose, your liver will provide glycogen, glucose. But if you start I mean, fasting for two days, three days, you have no more glycogen in your body. Your brain is glucose and the body keeps some glucose for the brain, just the brain. But the rest of the cells are starving for glucose. No glucose available, so they start burning fat. Three days after fasting, you are just burning fat. All your cells are burning fat. And if that's too much, you got ketosis, ketone bodies in the blood. And in the urine, we can detect that with the urinalysis. We can tell if someone's starving for three days, you take a urine sample, if we find ketone bodies, yeah, that person is starving, fasting. There's some kind of stimulus also associated with the breath, right? Yeah, exactly. This is eliminated through the breath also. There is some particular smell when the ketone bodies are excessive in, uh, in the blood. So, But it's seen at, at the beginning. And this is uh, all that, but explained in, uh, in the diagram. We have the glucose. Um, we have here glycolysis, or we just did glucose into pyruvic acid, acidic way, citric acid cycle. But then from here, we can make glucose, and that's called gluconeogenesis. When we take, we're taking these compounds and making glucose from these other compounds. Acetyl A can go into beta oxidation and break down into keto acid. If there's too much of this, and why there's too much of that? Because there's lipolysis here. Lipolysis breaking down a lot of fatty acids, a lot of acetyl may end up with lots of keto, uh, ketone bodies of keto acids. Yes. When does actually your body start to also break down your like skeletal proteins? Oh, sorry, say it again. The, the body is running above like you know the source of glucose or like fatty acids or lipids. When does it actually start to break down like muscles? 
Yeah. Yeah, this is what we're going to uh, mention here in amino acid metabolism. Uh, what happens is uh, there is a sequence in the utilization of all these nutrients. Is imagine a situation, and we see this actually in people with um, ver uh, chronic diseases and terminal diseases like cancer. People with cancer, there is there's a lot of metastasis and generalized. What you see is that these people lose weight. They lose weight because the cancer cells, they have a high metabolism and they need a lot of the energy. But they start losing weight but then in the terminal stages of the disease, you see them like losing even muscle. You see them completely just flesh and bone, practically. Why that happens? Well, if we follow the sequence. First thing that the cells use is glucose to make ATPs. Not enough glucose because they are not, not eating or consuming too much. What well, the next step is triglycerides. They start using all the triglycerides. And if still, sometimes people with cancer cannot eat normally, but the high metabolism requires even more energy. Where do we start taking that from? We start breaking down proteins. And it's muscle. What is broken down is practically eating themselves. And that provides the energy that these people need. But what you see is completely starvation condition. It's balanced. I mean, the body tries to use whatever it can to, uh, to keep the, the metabolism. Amino acids are the units of the proteins. The difference with other molecules is the presence of nitrogen. Amino acids are used to make proteins. So there's a list of amino acids that we need to eat. We call essential amino acids. And the rest of the amino acids, we can make it. I mean, the liver will make all these uh, amino acids that we need to make proteins. But if we make more amino acids or consume more amino acids, more than the amount that we need, the excess can be used as energy. Actually, it's not what happens first. What happens first is you... you eating too much proteins, you're going to eliminate that nitrogen. But then, if you need energies, these amino acids may be used as energy. Or what is worse, they can be turned into carbohydrates and then into fat. I mean, some people, they eat a lot of proteins and work out, thinking that they're going to grow muscle. But then after some weeks or months, they notice that they're gaining weight but not gaining muscle. And I said, why is this happening? Well, there's too much proteins. You don't need too much proteins. It's not the rule, but it may happen. It may happen. Because amino acids can turn, be turned into carbohydrates. And if there's too much carbohydrates and you're not exercising enough, it will be turned into fat. All these reactions are connected. And we'll see one diagram at the end. Transamination is a reaction related with amino acids and proteins. Um, again, pyruvic acid, acetyl-CoA, those are the crucial molecules in all this. Pyruvic acid and other intermediates, even keto acids, can be converted into amino acids. This is what we call transamination. 
And it's called transamination because the amine group, NH2, is transferred from one molecule to another. And vitamin B6 is required for this. And there are specific enzymes in the cells for this reaction to happen. This mostly happens in the liver. This mostly happens in the liver. When you get um, blood tests to assess your liver function, they usually ask you for liver enzymes. Well, we are, ask, we are trying to find out the level of transaminases, those enzymes that make this reaction possible, if they are present in the blood as a index to measure the liver function. And those two enzymes that are usually measured in the liver function tests are AST and ALT, which are involved in these reactions. This is a ketone body. This is a ketone body. So this amine group from aspartic acid, which is an amino acid, is transferred to this molecule. Now we have an amino acid from a molecule of ketone body. So thanks to these enzymes, some ketone bodies can be turned into amino acids and be used. You can imagine what happens if someone has uh, liver cancer or cirrhosis and the liver cells don't have these enzymes in enough amounts, not able to make these transamination reactions. And this is to show how the amino acids can enter into the citric acid cycle. See here, <clears throat> pyruvic acid, acetyl-CoA, citric acid cycle. And all the pink boxes are showing different amino acids that can be turned into or pyruvic acid or acetyl-CoA or some of the intermediates of the citric acid cycle. So in that way, amino acids can be can enter into the machinery of making energy. And this is what happens when we break down protein. We start breaking our muscles, and the amino acids can enter into the Krebs cycle to make more energy. just a different graph to show the relationship between glycogen, triglycerides, and proteins. <clears throat> you can see how the glycogen can be turned into glucose. This is what happens mostly. This happens every single second. When we have a meal, we start using the glucose that is in the meal, but then after three hours, four hours, we start getting glycogen from the liver to survive the rest of the hours. But then if there's no more glycogen, then we start looking to other places. The first place we look is this side. We start burning fats or use triglycerides. And instead we need more, or we don't have more, uh, any more triglycerides, we turn to look the other way for proteins. And all of them are related. Common pathways, citric acid cycle to make more energy.
don't spend your time remembering every single amino acid and what part of the cycle enters into the, into the chain. No questions are coming from this slide. But here we can see uh, uh, how different organs use different compounds. Um, in primary situations, not uh, exclusively. The brain, glucose, it relies on glucose. Brain tissue, nervous tissue relies on glucose. Even after we are starving or in very bad conditions, we still have glucose in our blood, and that glucose is reserved for the brain and nervous tissue. Skeletal muscles. Skeletal muscles in resting conditions they rely mostly on fatty acids. The liver, fatty acids. Heart, still fatty acids. And less amount. In second place, glucose. All these organs can use ketone bodies in more or, or less degree. And that's actually how they survive. Ketone bodies are good. They can use, be used by the cells. The, the excess is dangerous. Well, that's how the organs and the cells of different tissues survive using different types of, uh, of nutrients. Lactic acid. Lactic acid is formed mostly in the cardiac muscle cell, but it's quickly recycled. Otherwise, the heart will have problems, and the heart contracts for a lifetime. Questions, comments at this point? Okay, let's take a 10 minute break and then come back for uh, the next chapter, which probably will not finish, but uh, let's get into the, the next chapter. Go ahead and take a 10 minute break. About um, extracellular environment and has to do with mechanisms of diffusion and transport across the membrane, which are important to um, have before we go into the nervous system and uh, electrophysiology. Uh, first, we need to orientate ourselves or situate into what happens actually. What are the uh, fluids? Where are the fluids in our body? And just these facts here, 67% of water is inside the cells in the intracellular compartment. Now, the difference, 33%, is part of the extracellular compartment out of the cells. From this 33%, 20% is circulating as blood plasma, fluid in the blood. And 80% of this extracellular compartment or fluids is called interstitial fluid. So it's the, cell, it's the fluid that is bathed in the cells. And it's important to consider these percentages and numbers because these percentages are maintained all the time. If for some reason this 20% from the blood decreases, it's quickly restored. How? Well, we move water or fluid from the interstitial space to keep all these percentages in proportion. 
And that means that there's going to be movement of water from the interstitial fluid to the blood plasma. But now, if this interstitial fluid is getting lower, water is going to come out of the cell, intracellular, to restore this interstitial fluid outside the cell. So again, the numbers and proportions are maintained. And everything about transport, diffusion, osmosis will follow the maintenance of these percentages in different compartments. So two big ones, intracellular and extracellular. Intracellular inside the cells is 67%. Extracellular, 33%. And out of the extracellular, 80% interstitial fluid and 20% plasma. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Everything, all the mechanisms can be understood in terms of homeostasis or maintaining the balance, dynamic balance. The changes is restored. If it cannot be restored, then we're in trouble. We may have dehydration, we may have overhydration. So to move all these fluids and solute substances across membranes, we have to consider the plasma membrane as a semi-permeable membrane or selectively permeable membrane. Some substances will go through and some substances will not. What are the molecules that are not coming through? Proteins, nucleic acids, in general large molecules. And what substances go through? Small molecules, ions, sodium, potassium, calcium, nutrients, small nutrients, amino acids, carbohydrates, monosaccharides, some wastes. One determinant factor is the size of the molecule. Proteins and large molecules will not go through the membrane. So how these substances move? There are different mechanisms. We can divide all these transport mechanisms into big, two big groups. Non-carrier mediated and carrier mediated. Non-carrier, they don't need any additional uh, transporter or mechanisms that help them go through. In carrier, there's usually a protein in the memory that helps them to move across. Now, in the non-carrier mediated, we can describe these different mechanisms. Simple diffusion of lipid soluble. The membrane is lipid. So substances that are lipid soluble can go easily through the membrane. Simple diffusion of ions through specific channels or non-specific channels like sodium, potassium, chloride. There are channels or pores in the membrane that are open and they easily go through those pores. But they don't need any help. They just need an open door. Uh, yeah. What would 
the example you gave on the simple diffusion of lipids that go there? Uh, Lipid-soluble molecules. Lipid-soluble molecules. And simple diffusion of water, which is known as osmosis. And among the carrier mediated, we can describe to facilitated diffusion, which is uh, which involves the help usually of a protein in the membrane that facilitates the movement, or active transport. This is more complex. It requires a specific protein and consumption of energy, active transport. There's another classification that devises mechanisms in passive and active. And in passive, they include the, the ones on top. But this is considered the carrier or non-carrier. As we see here, passive transport molecules and active transport molecules, that's another way of classifying the transport mechanisms. And this is in relation to the utilization of energy. Passive transport the molecules move without using energy. But to move, they need energy. Well, that energy is provided by the concentration gradient, the difference of concentration of the substance in one and the other side of the membrane. And we saw that uh, last uh, weekend, uh, lab time, the molecules move from higher to lower concentration area. That's the law of diffusion. Active transport, mechanisms that require consumption of energy in terms of ATP and specific pumps, which are proteins in the membrane. What they need energy for? They need energy to move substances from lower to higher concentration areas against the concentration gradient. And that's what we see in nervous system. The nervous system, we'll see, it's very important, the function of the sodium-potassium pump, because it's going to move ions against the concentration gradient. That's a representation of the passive and active transport mechanisms. In passive, what it drives, the movement, is the concentration gradient. There's more molecules in one side, so the molecules will move across the membrane following that concentration gradient. Maybe simple diffusion or facilitated diffusion. You see a protein in the membrane that is facilitating, is helping the movement of molecules. But there is no consumption of energy. On the other side, active transport, you see the molecules moving against the concentration gradient because these four, there are two squares here and five here. So these are moving against the concentration gradient. And for that, energy is required, ATP, and a protein, a pump that brings the molecules inside against the concentration gradient. We did this part last week before we uh, 
we started the, the, the lab on Thursday. It's just the concept of diffusion. The molecules move all the time, and we've seen that in the lab experiment with Brownian, Brownian motion, how the molecules move. And when we heat up the slide with the solution, we see the movement even faster. Uh, but then, when there's a plasma membrane involved, then we'll see some things, like nonpolar lipid-soluble molecules will go easily through the membrane. That's what we were saying, lipid-soluble molecules, like oxygen, carbon dioxide, steroids, lipid-soluble, they will just go through easily. Gas exchange. We haven't considered gas yet, but the gas moves following the same thing, the concentration gradient. In this case, it's called the uh, pressure, the partial pressure of the gas. But it's the same thing as concentration gradient. That's how the oxygen gets into the cells and the carbon dioxide gets out of the cells. And then the same in the lungs. And the water, that's what we call osmosis. And that's just to represent the movement or diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide following the concentration gradient. Or in the case of the gases, we speak in terms of partial pressure of the gas, but it's the same thing. It's where there, wherever there's more, we'll move to the place where there is less of that. And this is what we did last time in osmosis. We see some molecules represented here as proteins. The purple uh, circles are molecules of proteins that cannot go out. You see them here bouncing against the wall because they're too big. They always stay inside. But there are other molecules like ions, glucose in yellow and green they can go freely, and they move, depending on the amount, depending on the amount of these uh, substances outside and inside this uh, mechanism. In the experiment last week, we used sucrose, which is a disaccharide, and it's a big molecule for the pores of the dialysis membrane that we used. Just the water moved across, but not the not the sucrose. Now, first thing to consider in movement of transport of substances is what we said, that there are channels, pores that are open all the time. Some others, they have like gates that open and close depending on different factors. But as soon as these channels are open, the molecules will move. Whatever molecule it is, if it's sodium, potassium, glucose, as soon as the door is open, they will come in or move across the membrane following their concentration gradient. And when we talk about ions, which are charged particles, that's the way they go out and in.
And there are factors that control or determine how well diffusion will happen. The rate of diffusion. It is measured by how many particles go through in a unit of time. Uh, but the factors are here. If the concentration difference is higher, the rate of diffusion will be higher. If the membrane is more permeable and the pores are big enough, well, the rate of diffusion will be higher. If we increase the temperature of the solution, we increase the movement of the molecules, and more molecules will go through. Or if there is more, more membrane, more surface area exposed, of course, there will be, will increase the rate of diffusion. That is one of the reasons why the small intestine is 20 feet long. To have more surface area for diffusion. If the small intestine was, were like three feet long, all of us would be starving, not getting enough nutrients. There will be not enough time to absorb all the nutrients. And osmosis, which is the movement of water following the concentration gradient of the solutes, is another mechanism of diffusion. In this case, diffusion of water. It's just movement of water when a membrane is semi-parable. Now, for osmosis, the water will flow through a membrane. But in the plasma membrane, there are additional channels, proteins, called aquaporins, that will help and facilitate the movement of water, and even more, it can regulate how much water goes out and how much water goes, comes in. But essentially, it's osmosis. It's like a facilitated osmosis, what happens, especially in the kidneys. Eyes, lungs, the brain cells can have also these aquaporins, especially the brain, because when there's an excessive amount of water in the brain, the cells have to get rid of the water, otherwise we'll just have brain damage. And they need to get rid of the water faster, and for that the cells have more aquaporins, and not just rely on simple movement of water. We did this last time in the, before the lab. What are the requirements? We need a semi-permeable membrane. These are the definitions of osmosis that we uh, uh, read before the lab. How the water moved from an area of higher concentration of water to less concentration of water, or in the other way, from an area of low concentration of solutes to an area of high concentration of solutes. Osmotic pressure. What is osmotic pressure? Osmotic pressure is that force. Is that force that make the water move from one side to another. And that force is different. If the concentration gradient of the solutes is higher, there will be more pressure. The water will move in more amounts or with more pressure. And this actually is not something that we can measure with us with an instrument or something. 
it's a concept like imagine in the experiment last time you observed the water came out of the sausages with sucrose and so the sucrose solution how would you be able to return all that water back to the to the inside of the sausage you just have to get the water and squeeze it and push it inside in some way with the force that you need the concept of force that you need to get the water back inside the sausage that is what the osmotic pressure is and if more water came out you need more pressure more force to get more water in water back so it's a concept it's a concept of osmotic pressure it's not actually an instrument that we can measure osmotic pressure but it's in relation to the higher solid concentration if it's more or the concentration of the solid is higher that means that there will be a higher osmotic pressure. And the higher osmotic pressure means that more water will come out faster. And in some cases may give us trouble. Like what happens in the brain again. If there are some conditions that make this happen in the brain, sometimes the water comes into the brain cells very quick by difference in the concentration increasing the osmotic pressure. Okay, questions, comments to this point. Let's stop it here. And uh, as I said, we'll continue on Thursday before we start with the lab. The lab this week is about spectrophotometry. We're gonna work with solutions and uh, proteins, albumin especially. And uh, it will last like probably one hour and a half at most. So then we use some of the time at the beginning for getting into the next chapter it's very related with this but we finish this and we get into the next one uh we won't have a quiz this thursday we will have it on next tuesday okay
I will work on the lab report I missed, and I'll do just what I can do without yeah. the thing, and then I'll turn it in on Thursday. Yeah, sure. Okay. No problem. Thank you. Bye. 